I'm Jeffrey Rickman, and this is Plain Spoken. This is normally a, a sort of news commentary channel, and I had every intention of doing that this week, but I came across a document that uh, I find very interesting, very helpful in the conversation that our denomination's having about disinformation, misinformation, um, the, the conversation around disaffiliation, who should be having the conversation, how it should be done. Um, so I, there is always stuff developing in, in the, the general church, and I'm not reporting on anything in this. Rather, um, this is for people I, who are just interested in, in thinking critically through the issues in front of us. It's very easy to find people um, in every party, whether it be the UMC, the GMC, um, WCA, that, that just have their, their simplistic truisms that they say. There are not many people that I see publicly thinking through these things very well, um, and I'm not going to pretend that I'm the best. However, um, I'd like this to be a segment where you can just put the phone down and think through these things with me or uh, listen while you're working out at the gym. That's a good thing to do, or gardening. Um, so uh, I'm going to point you to the document now. This is from the North Georgia Annual Conference. I got this. This was recommended from a, a DS and another annual conference as a means of helping institutionalists, um, he said, combat the misinformation of the WCA. However, I don't think this was put out by the WCA. This, this was a slideshow that a local church used, and I could not find which church it was. Um, but the North Georgia Annual Conference added their revisions to it to correct the misinformation in it. So I'm going to go down the line. It's a it's a 33-page document, and I'm not going to hit every single point. However, I, I do want to introduce a lot of the key themes. If you haven't noticed already, there are a number of recurring places where we disagree about what's misinformation or not and why that is. So um, whether you are inclined to leave or stay in the United Methodist Church, my investment is just to help people think and talk through these things better than we do because humans have this uh, tribalistic tendency to say, this is my side and this is what I stand by, and uh, they disrupt their critical faculties when they do that. We are people with brains, and we're supposed to use them, especially as it comes to faith. So this document is called The Current Status of Issues Dividing the United Methodist Church. It was originally made in, in May 22nd and then revised, and you'll see anything in that red box as a revision, ostensibly by the annual conference. I don't know when I said it was. It was May 2022. My buddy TJ is going to help me speak more accurately. All right, so the overview is presented here. The purpose is to educate and inform church members regarding current issues in the denomination that are driving changes in affiliation between traditional Orthodox Methodists and progressives. So already there's a point of reference there are more than two groups within the UMC, and the vast majority of those in the UMC, centrists, do not identify fully with either of these two ideological extremes. Already I'm, I'm finding this not necessarily helpful because the way it's presented, I think it's pretty uh, obvious that it's presenting a continuum. There are two extremes, and of course there are going to be people who fall in the middle. Um, the purpose here is helping people discern where they fall. So there's there's a, a a trend in progressive thought that I've noticed long before this came, long out, outside of the denomination, where they reject generalizations uh, as a whole. They just say there are exceptions, therefore the generalization fails. 
I, I think life becomes incoherent when you no longer can even talk in generalities. Uh, so let's keep that going forward because this, this critique comes up a lot. What's the desired outcome? Church members will be prepared to make an informed decision. What's the note on informed? They say based on an understanding of the facts, not opinion, conjecture, politics, predictions, or motives. Okay, so we have a distinction here between facts and opinion, conjecture, politics, predictions, or motives. So they're wanting to have the conversation outside of any opinions, conjecture, politics, predictions, or motives. And I'm not sure that I can agree on the front end that those things are irrelevant. Now, it's, it's important to be able to distinguish between those things that we know for certain and those things that are likely. But whenever we're removing likelihoods from the conversation, that's when I wonder what's the point of even talking. Um, yeah, well, let, let's continue thinking on that. Okay, so we're having an informed decision regarding our CFUMC. I don't know what CF stands for, but that's, that's their church. As the split accelerates across the denomination... So we may firmly establish the vision of our future consistent with our common and shared profession of faith. So they're saying that the split is accelerating. How does the conference correct that? So it's a point of reference. There were approximately 100 churches that chose to disaffiliate from the UMC last year in the U.S. Well, that's not a lot. Some on either side of the ideological divide, which represents 3 out of 10 or 1%. No, it doesn't. Three-tenths of one percent. Three-tenths of one percent. Thank you, TJ. Of the 31,000 churches within the UMC. Okay, so it's an infinitesimal. This is not an accelerating thing. This is very small. This year in North Georgia, and to be voted on at annual conference, 70 churches have requested disaffiliation. These churches represent just 3% of North Georgia conference represent uh, membership, 340,000 members total. Note that 67 of these churches have less than 100 in average worship attendance. 49 are served by part-time local pastors. The largest church has 1,800 members, the smallest three members. Half of these churches have fewer than 30 in average attendance. So it's not accelerating. It's small. It's infinitesimal. Now, of course, uh, this must have been written a while back because now thousands have disaffiliated. Um, over 2,000 churches have disaffiliated. We're expecting another two or 3,000. Um, it is accelerating. And sure, maybe in North Georgia they were small churches. Uh, in Oklahoma Annual Conference, where I'm from, the very largest disaffiliated. The second largest just announced its desire to disaffiliate. Um, a ton of large, thriving churches are wanting to leave. And we can either um, um, gaslight them and pretend their concerns are not valid, or we can try and understand concerns. So here's this this church that made this presentation wants us to understand the concerns, and then the editors that I'm responding to want us to dismiss those concerns. So we're going to just march through this together and see what the concerns are. So the, the title here, split into two or more separate denominations, why? And then the note says, no MC, UMC has to vote for a split, which of course is true. I, their, their point, I've noticed like this is something that a lot of left-leaning or institutionalist people are just saying, well, we don't have to vote. I, I'm not sure anybody's saying you have to vote. It's just if you have right-leaning people in your congregation, might be a good idea to have the conversation. So that's, that's all that I see this doing here. So this page is Protocol in the General Conference. 
so it's nice that they verify the facts. General conference has been postponed to 2024. Fact. The protocol for reconciling grace through separation can be passed only at general conference. That's a fact. Pretty much, if you don't know about that, it was a way of amicable separation that ha- pretty much all of the progressive and centrist voices, institutionalist voices that said they would support it have backed off from it now. So paragraph 2553, which allows churches to disaffiliate from the UMC, expires at the end of 2023, and that date cannot be extended before it expires. So that's a fact. They, they don't argue with that. One would be inclined to say after that there is no way to get out of the denomination. A lot of people say that that statement I just made is disinformation because hypothetically we could make another way out. The North Georgia Annual Conference must vote on church requests for disaffiliation by June 2023. They say it's a partial fact. The North North Georgia Conference could call a special conference to address requests until 2553 expires on December. And a lot of church, a lot of uh, annual conferences have done that. I guess since this was produced, this must have been produced before uh, the conference announced that they are just discontinuing disaffiliation altogether. Um, 71 North Georgia churches have begun the process to disaffiliate, and many more are expected to follow later this year. Why? Okay, so they say this is uh, an opinion, not a fact. Many is a large number, typically the majority. Hey, it's not the majority, so many, many doesn't apply here. Fact, there are 787 churches and approximately 340,000 members in the North Georgia Conference. The 70 churches who have requested that a church conference be called with their DS only represent approximately 3% of the North Georgia Conference membership. Note, not all of the UMC is divided. Okay, that must be for the next page. Um, So what the institution is representing here is it's a very small fraction, a small minority who are really interested in disaffiliation the vast majority of United Methodist churches are happy to be in the fold. Now, I think that's a disingenuous position to take, and the reason is because there are massive costs that come with disaffiliation that most churches are not financially or otherwise in a position to entertain. Um, it comes with um, paying uh, Okay, pretty much in Oklahoma Annual Conference, where I am. Uh, we're going by the book of 2553, um, we do have a couple added expenses that are not according to the 2553. However, they're not charging like a percentage on the real estate value or anything. What those fees come to is pretty much the exact same value as our annual budget, one year's annual budget. To exit, we would have to pay an entire year's budget to do that. How many churches can seriously consider that? And in several of these annual conferences, they have it very uh, a very complicated, if not impossible, process. Some conferences have straight up said, we're not going to allow you to disaffiliate. When it's a hostile environment, you have to have a supermajority to exit. Yeah, you have to. if you call a church vote, uh, you have to get 66.6% of the vote. Um, if, if those are the requirements, how many churches are actually going to see that as a realistic option for them? It's the question is, you know, what they're trying to say is everybody wants to stay UMC. It's a great brand. Everybody is happy. And that is not the case. If, if churches could leave without any expenses, without any punishment, I don't know what percentage of churches would want to leave. The United Methodist Church as a denomination has been fraught for a long time. Conservatives and liberals have been miserable 
for a long time. You see it every four years at general conference. We behave terribly towards one another um, to imagine that this is this is this is a good brand. Everybody's pretty much happy. You're deluded. That's just not true. Next slide. The UMC is divided by two major perspectives, and once again, it's going to say not everybody, but these are the two ex- uh, polls on which many people are in the middle. So you have the traditionalist perspective has a historical historic interpretation of the Bible. So what's the correction here? By its own language, interpretation is involved. Fact. I like to imagine Dwight Schrute doing this. No one can take the entire inspired Word of God and interpret it infallibly. There always have been and always will be disagreements over matters of interpretation. Note, slavery, women in leadership, divorce and remarriage, and now LGBTQ plus stuff. I don't see why this is a valid argument because what it functionally does is, I mean, on its face, yeah, interpretations involved and people who take the Bible very seriously often disagree on how things should be interpreted. Fine. But if the inference there is that all interpretations are equally valid and faithful, I think that that argument, and inferred argument, on its face is ridiculous. There are clearly some interpretations that are more faithful than others. John Wesley himself talked about the plain meaning of Scripture, um, and he, he was a Bible bigot, he called himself. If we're walking in his ways, uh, as the term Methodist pretty much explicitly implies, there is an, we should have an intolerance for not serious interpretations of Scripture. And of course, everybody would say their interpretation is serious, and they're entitled to say whatever they want. I don't have to agree with them that their interpretation is a serious interpretation. You cannot make me think something I do not think. So traditionalists do not take seriously liberal interpretations of the Bible. Uh, In fact, we often point to Adam Hamilton, who provided the notion of three buckets, the third of which being scriptures you can just throw out, uh, out of hand. You know, these are things that prominent United Methodists have talked about for some time. Traditionalists don't think you can throw out any part of the Bible ever. All right. Uh, traditionalists do not believe in culturally redefining the Bible. Uh, what's the correction here? Interpretation equals the act of explaining the meaning of something, and to redefine is to define differently than previously defined. I don't see, I don't see how this is contradicting what they say. I think, I think they might be inferring that whenever you are interpreting the Bible to a modern audience, you are by nature redefining the Bible maybe, but I, I would disagree with that, and most all traditionalists would, I think. The third thing about traditionalists is they, their beliefs align with the current book of discipline. So the question, so why would a traditionalist vote to leave the UMC? That, that begging question is, is a good one worth answering. Most tra- traditionalists would argue because liberals and leftists and progressives have uh, effectively taken over all the levers of power in the denomination, are selectively enforcing the Book of Discipline, not enforcing many parts of it, not defending our discipline, and have now stacked the deck in favor to have a, a hostile takeover in General Conference 2024. Now, the authors of, of this would say that's, that's, uh, that's telling the future. What, what was the word they used that they said is, is not legitimate here? Um, conjecture. 
they would say that's a conjecture or a prediction and not relevant here. They would say, I think, that, hey, if you're happy with, the, with what's in the Book of Discipline, you should, uh, you should stay. And then if there happens to be a hostile takeover by left-leaning uh, progressives, well, shucks, you know, didn't see it coming. Okay, what's the difference? Uh, progressives, they include a wide range of interpretation and theological ideas. They may believe in a few, many, or all the views listed. I find this a very helpful definition. They range from moderate to strongly progressive. Okay, what's the correction here? All people not defined as traditionalists are grouped together into the progressive bucket in this presentation. This characterization skews and improperly frames the discussion, and of course it leads to a wide range of interpretation and theological ideas presented. The truth is that everyone falls on a spectrum to some degree, and the vast majority are near the center together. Uh, so they say, uh, check out this thing below. Both groups, uh, groups believe their view is true to the gospel. Uh, you've got us and them, and you've got everyone else. Aren't most UMC churches like this? So yes, but if you're saying, because this is how we are, this is the way we should be, and it shouldn't be a problem, is uh, ridiculous on its face. We're quite miserable and have been for some time, and it's because we made this big tent where people are intolerant of one another and what we believe. And something just right on the front end here, it's going to talk about, it's going to paint this picture where we've had a lot of diversity and we've all been pretty happy, and that on its face just is not true. And I've heard personally people on the left lay the deaths of gay and trans kids at the feet of traditionalists like me. If we didn't believe what we believe and preached what we preached, then gay and trans kids would be flourishing. But it's because of people like me that they kill themselves and they're miserable, and it's their duty to change people like me. And when that's allowed within the church, whenever you allow people to say, all of the evil in this world is caused by people like this guy over here, we can't be in fellowship. That, that on its face is ridiculous, and that is very common within our denomination. So it's going to explain the wide range of progressive beliefs here on page six. So it's very clear, not all these beliefs are shared, but they're all accepted. And they don't treat this seriously at all. I, I grew up liberal for the first 20-some years of my life. This is true. The, the thing that's inimical to the liberal worldview, progressive worldview, is that you kick anybody out. There has to be room for everybody. So you allow for people to believe all kinds of things, so long as they're not conservative. So you can believe or not believe all these things as long as you make room for other people and you don't draw these lines of who's in and who's out, you can be a progressive. So they can hold traditional views but support same-sex marriage in the church, ordaining of practicing homosexuals. Some of them don't believe in a virgin birth. Some believe that not all parts of the Bible are relevant in today's culture, that Jesus' death on the cross is not necessarily an not necessary as an atonement for sin. Some believe the Bible is a metaphor. Some believe in universal salvation, that Jesus is not the only way. Some uh, believe do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. It goes on. Some, um, oh no, I think it's the same thing, um, but they have another note. So here's the point of reference. There are no cities sites or sources provided to support these beliefs or assumptions. I think that's just a disingenuous correction. I, I think these things are so widely known that to say, uh, I mean, is, is water wet? <laughs> you know, uh, There's no citation uh, to, to prove that water is wet, so we should not receive this 
um, fact, those beliefs are not supported nor found within the doctrines of the United Methodist Church. No kidding. No kidding. And the, the whole problem here is even though they are not acceptable doctrine in the United Methodist Church, we have made room for people who believe these things, even clergy who believe these things, even bishops who believe these things. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, Bishop Sprague was the big one in 2004. He should have been defrocked publicly. We dismissed all charges and let it go. Ever since then, well and long before, it's been a theological free-for-all. Let's be honest. What's the note on this page? Not all progressives hold a non-traditional view, nor do all progressives and centrists support same-sex marriage and ordination. No kidding. The, the point here is not... I mean, the, the authors of this were so explicit that they know not all of them believe this stuff. This is so annoying. The, they're saying within this whole family of beliefs, all these things are acceptable to believe. And so, of course, not all of them. Yeah, of course. So what are United Methodist beliefs? Um, let's see this note at the top of the page. As United Methodists, our non-negotiables and the bedrock of our denominational beliefs are the articles of religion, and they cannot be changed or modified. Fine. So these are paraphrases from the articles of religion. Um, there is but one true God. Jesus, Son of God, took form, human form through virgin birth. Christ was sacrificed, died, and was buried as atonement. And you know, if you don't know these, you need to read through them. The, the question here is not if we can change the articles of religion. The question is how many people actually confess this, and do we have any bishops at all that are willing to uh, dismiss clergy who don't confess these things in a biblically recognizable sense? And the answer is I don't think we do. I'm not aware of any pastors brought up on charges for, for violating any of the articles of religion. So they, they are there. They're going to be there. Functionally, they might as well not be there. That's what traditionalists would say. Now, some people would say, well, the Board of Ordained Ministry uh, screens people for believing this stuff. I've been through the Board of Ordained Ministry. They screen some of these and not others. It's up to them to decide what they're going to screen. And on top of that, a lot of people lie. They lie. And that's why you need for bishops to be able to review them and remove them when they do not confess these doctrines. And when you remove that, you have lost your quality control and you cannot trust the authority in the denomination. That's why we're in the situation that we're in. Um, <laughs> they're anticipating what some people will say. You know, there are people brought up on charges sometimes, um, and, and we follow the book of discipline. Well, they don't report... They, they do actually at one point report on, in North Georgia, they had a couple people brought up on charges, and they actually reported what happened. Generally what happens, though, is they enter into a confidential resolution process where the bishop and the conference uh, entities do not report on what happened. You don't have any sort of transparent justice, and you find a lot of people, and we'll see here, uh, we investigated it, and we found no evidence. So, um, yeah, we'll get there when we get there. So what's the current UMC Book of Discipline language? You have stuff on inclusiveness, on human sexuality, on marriage, and ordination of ministers. It's all con uh, concordant with what you find in the scriptures. Traditionalists should like these things. So caution. This slide provides limited quotes out of context. Please review entire sections cited and additional ones on the next slide to properly assess the current language of the Book of Discipline. So progressives have been unhappy with this language for some time. 
and wanting to change it and wanting to mitigate what it clearly says uh, to be more palatable to the age in which we serve. It adds um, these, these additional um, places where uh, we've taken liberal stances, so the denomination should be more palatable to, um, to liberals, pretty much. Then you have uh, the UMC Book of Discipline. Um, what do traditionalists say? Uh, it has language related to human sexuality that should remain the same, and marriage in the churches between a man and a woman. So the editor says, this is a fact. The Book of Discipline currently defines marriage as being between a man and a woman. Okay, great. So what about progressives? They want all language related to human sexuality removed. Now, that comment below there makes it be more exact. They only want the gay stuff removed right now. So there are other things about human sexuality that ostensibly progressives still stand behind. Um, the question I would ask is, are there any sexual things for which liberals would be willing to kick somebody out of the church if they violate? And what, what I've said before is that goes against a liberal sensibility, to imagine that we would kick anybody out of the church for violating um, a sexual norm. I think we're progressive. We're, if we're not already there, we are at a place where many liberals, if not most, would say, no, there is no sexual behavior that we are willing to exclude people based on. The next one is that um, they allow for same-sex marriage and ordination of practicing homosexuals. Not all beliefs are shared, but all are accepted. That's the, that's the original document that says that. But the note here is not all beliefs are accepted by all progressives, as noted. So it's that refutation of generalizations here um, and just a, a, a willing, uh, purposeful misunderstanding of the way that the authors set this up. Um, page 12. This is all a note from the annual conference editors. If your congregation is considering disaffiliation from the denomination, not from the so-called progressive movement, it's making distinction between the UMC and progressives, it is very important to consider the current beliefs of the denomination when making an informed decision on whether to vote, not to vote, or wait to consider disaffiliation. For this reason, the corresponding doctrinal beliefs, UMC beliefs, have been added to the next four slides. So they added... Um, Four slides, I guess. Oh, no, they're, they're, okay, never mind. So point of reference, each member of the UMC has a voice and vote, not just traditionalists or progressives on the far right or left. So information from the UMC perspective should actually be, oh, no, they, they added, okay, they reformatted. They have the traditional, the original authors had traditional progressive, and then the editors added the UMC perspective. All right, so information from the denominational perspective should actually be the most important. It was left out of the original presentation. So here, they're just fundamentally rejecting the, the framework of the document. The document says we have two opposing ideologies that have made a home within this big tent, and of course a lot of people fall in the middle, but as we're navigating where local churches belong, we need to understand both of these ideologies and reckon with how happy we're going to be in a denomination that that is likely to split. They're wanting us not to talk about likelihoods, but I don't see why that's a valid critique. Life is is based, we navigate our lives based on uh, likelihoods. You know, I am likely to be hungry in two hours, so I need to make plans for lunch. Well, maybe you won't be hungry in two hours, and you can go indefinitely without food. Don't think about the food. I mean, that's fundamentally a ridiculous way to go through life, but that is, they're wanting us to turn off our critical faculties 
Um, you know, we have these prefrontal cortexes in our brains that can imagine the future and anticipate it, and that's what makes us different from the uh, most of the animal kingdom. We can foresee things and plan for them accordingly. We should use our brains and try and navigate problems before, anticipate problems before they come. That's that's what they're rejecting here uh, because, um, I can't say because, I can't read their minds. I would say functionally the reason you would not want people to prognosticate or uh, uh, look to the future is if you're pretty sure you've got the future in the bag and you don't want your enemies to see that um, and, and plan accordingly. All right, so um, I'm going to reject the middle column because it's irrelevant. There's what is currently on paper that is being disregarded. That's what traditionalists believe. No, that's not, it's not a matter of belief. There have been uh, hundreds of articles written about ways in which the discipline was not maintained or defended by conferences. Uh, there have been uh, several conferences and or jurisdictions that have explicitly said we're not going to follow parts of the discipline that we find morally reprehensible. This is not a, an argument. This, this is a fact. Uh, so traditionalist, with respect to Scripture, we believe that the Scripture is the Word of God, that the biblical revelation is complete, which means you don't need to add to it, that the Bible is true and authoritative, and that experience is subject to Scripture. So it's not that your experience is illegitimate, it's just it's only illegitimate if it doesn't fit with the Scripture. The Scripture defines the truth. So what's the note here? Traditionalists depart from the authoritative text of the Bible on certain issues, women in leadership, slavery, and divorce, and Leviticus and other Old Testament chapters. I think it's a disingenuous argument uh, with respect to women in leadership. There are many thoughtful conservatives. I can usually think of the guy at, at Asbury, I can think of his face, um, who argue that, that women in leadership clearly existed in the early church and uh, that there was a trajectory between Old Testament to New Testament to now with respect to women that is not to be found in other areas of, of uh, dissent. With respect to slavery, we know that while the Scriptures accepted slavery as an institution, in some sense they did not bless it as holy um, and provide lots of doctrine, uh, especially in the doctrine of the Imago Dei that works against it. Uh, and divorce, pretty much every traditionalist I know says conti continues to say that divorce is a sin and not good and should not be blessed. Um, so we might uh, be more gracious than some other tribes with respect to divorce, but to say that we sold out um, is uh, not necessarily true. Uh, conservatives, as they have augmented their approach to these issues, have done so with fear and trembling, knowing that we could be wrong. Um, it's, it's only a very uh, proud person who says, uh, we're going to interpret this differently than historically has been done, and we're right, and everybody before was wrong. And I understand there are people like that. I think that's the wrong way to be. So I think they're just saying, you know what? Conservatives don't even believe the Bible. Look at the ways that they've sold out. They're trying to act like they take the Bible seriously. No, they don't. None of us do, and we should stop pretending that we do. I think that's the inference there. Progressives, uh, they believe that the Bible scriptures contain the Word of God. They aren't the Word of God. They contain the Word of God in some places. You can identify where those are, and you can just throw out some other parts, like Hamilton's buckets, right? Uh, new revelation takes precedence over old, so I, you know, this would be like a lot of 
Pentecostals. The Lord showed me something. But you find this in progressive circles as well. I had a dream. Uh, never mind what Jude says about dreamers, right? Uh, you can have new rev- revelation that displaces what's in the Bible. Parts of the Bible are true, says the next point. Portions can be dismissed as not authoritative or not relevant today. So that's tied to the, the first notion. And then uh, the last one is experience supersedes, comes before Scripture. So that's, that's the second one reiterated. Note, when examining certain subject matter, this is what the conference says, like women in leadership within the church or divorce, these same characteristics identified as being progressive herein can be equally used to describe traditionalists. Here's another note. Not all beliefs are accepted by all progressives, as noted, and no source is cited for these assertions. It's going to have that same note at the bottom of each of these pages. I feel like I've adequately addressed that. Um, And I addressed the other note before as well. It's, it, you know, well, let's go on. What, what's the difference between traditionalists and progressives with respect to the nature and role of Jesus? Traditionalists believe that Jesus was incarnate, and he's fully human and fully divine, that he was born of a virgin, that he had a physical, literal death, and a bodily resurrection. I added literal, but I don't think anyone would disagree with me. What do progressives believe about the nature and role of Jesus? They may or may not believe in any or all of these tenets as the, uh, of the Apostles' Creed. Um, and then they have the same note at the bottom. Not all beliefs are accepted by all progressives, as noted, and no sources cited for these assertions. What does the UMC say about Jesus? I don't have time to go through that. Um, all right. Let's go to the nature and role of sin. What do traditionalists believe? They believe that uh, sin is personal, it separates us from God, it requires atonement, and forgiveness comes from faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All right, so sin is one of those words that both liberals and conservatives use but mean very different things by. Uh, that's one of the, the things that's infuriating about our denominational context is we use a lot of the same words, but we mean opposite things by it. So what do progressives mean when they're talking about sin? It's not personal, it's societal from external forces. So it's not personal and internal, it's external and societal. Um, They don't believe in original sin. They believe that man is inherently good. Okay, Uh, so I'm not sure that's true. I think most are actually Pelagians where we're born neither good nor bad and we're capable of both equally. Uh, If we're going to be more precise about what traditionalists should believe, it's that we're born inclined towards evil, um, and that continually. All right, progressives believe that sin, uh, that it's possible for sin to be corrected through works of justice and mercy. Yes and no. You know, when you're talking about racial justice, uh, there are a lot of people who would say that there's no amount of justice and mercy that can be done that would undo the stain of the past. Um, that, that there is no point of, of peaceful resolution in the future. So, uh, but whatever, it says not all beliefs are shared, but all are accepted. So, you know, I'm sure plenty of progressives believe that. The last thing that progressives believe about sin is that Jesus' death on the cross is not necessary for atonement. I've heard this refuted so many times by progressives. Um, yeah, it, a rejection of blood atonement theory. You know, the traditionalists believe that, that sin requires atonement, uh, progressives think that doing works of justice and mercy are that those works of atonement rather than blood sacrifice. 
Um, not all these beliefs are shared. And then the same note from the, the editor, not all beliefs are accepted by all... Duh, yes, we know. Okay. What about salvation? Traditionalists believe that it's a precious gift received in response to God's grace and that it only comes through faith in Jesus. Progressives, they believe in universal salvation, that all receive salvation regardless of what they believe, and they believe that there's more than one path to salvation. So, and yeah, all, all progressives have to believe some notion of this. I, I've never met a single progressive who says, no, if you are not in Christ, you are going to hell. Uh, most progressives don't even believe in hell, so I'm I'm comfortable with this. I think this gels with reality. <laughs> All right, so it, it moves on from there. What's the current state of governance in the United Methodist Church? Uh, the original authors say human sexuality language has been voted on and kept in the Book of Discipline by a majority vote at General Conference for decades. They don't argue with that one. They don't say it's a fact. I don't know why. But yeah, ever since the beginning, there have been malcontents who've tried to change the stance. They've come every four years, and every four years, the General Conference has said, yeah, we have a good position. We're not changing it. The General Conference in 2019, it was a special call General Conference. It was supposed to settle the issue once and for all. There was all kinds of maneuvering to make things change. We still stuck by the Book of Discipline, and when it was all over, they said, nope, you made the wrong call. We're not accepting this infuriating. All right. Uh, the Book of Discipline is not followed in many United Methodist churches and conferences. Fact. Uh, <laughs> they disagree. As set forth in the United Methodist Book of Discipline, the UMC has systems, processes, rules, and governing bodies in existence to address churches and conferences not following the Book of Discipline. Well, no kidding. Yes, we all know we have the things in place. They're just not being used. That's the whole problem. That's just, that's silly to even, anyway. Next point by the original authors. The Book of Discipline not enforced, is not enforced by current leadership in our own conference. So they have two instances. I'm sure they didn't mean this as exhaustive. North Georgia same-sex couples wedding and ordination on December of 2021 in Glen Memorial UMC with two North Georgia UMC elders officiating and one of the espoused is a candidate for ordination second instance, the bishop reinstated candidacy of one of the espoused for ordination after their suspension with no clergy actions condoning the book of discipline violation. Our United Methodist apportionments collectively support these actions. So they're just keeping it contained to their annual conference. When you look at the general church level, we have two people serving who are actively involved in practicing gay relationships, um, uh, uh, legal marriages, that my apportionment dollars, your apportionment dollars are funding. Judicial Council said they are not valid uh, uh, candidates for that role. Their jurisdiction just shrugged and said, well, we're not going to do anything about it. And they're just sitting there collecting 175 k a year, each of them, uh, that you and I put in the offering plates. Here's a point of reference from uh, the, the editors. A full and vigorous investigation was conducted in connection with the wedding described herein. Okay, what did it yield? The charges brought against the clergy in question were dropped after it was found that they did not violate the discipline. Regarding the candidate for ordination, a statement has been requested to confirm circumstances described. So um, this is this is the sort of uh, foot-dragging and confusion. 
uh, it did not say that they did not violate the discipline, that the original charges were confused, and that these elders had nothing to do with this ceremony. Rather, it just says, we found that the discipline wasn't violated. That's that's as explicit. If anybody finds the uh, uh, a more particular write-up on this, I'd be curious to see. However, um, it's neither here nor there. We're talking about a widespread culture throughout the correction. Um, <laughs> I remember when I was entering ministry, there was a a gay activist lady, a, a lesbian, who was clearly involved in uh, practicing um, uh, uh, lesbianism, and she was brought up on charges, and they required her to put out a, a statement. The, the, the just resolution process required her to put out a statement of apology, and her public statement was, I apologize for nothing. I apologize for my denomination for being a bunch of bigots and uh, she was kept in good standing. So the whole thing's just been a farce this whole time. I'm sorry I can't recall her name. So <clears throat> just for reference, I went to the Glen Memorial Church website, um, and it says Glen UMC is a member of the Reconciling Ministries Network, so they actively do same-sex weddings. It's on their website right now. Okay, so when you're talking about Glen Memorial United Methodist Church, that... This reference is right here. They are a reconciling church. I don't know why we ever allowed churches to be reconciling. They're saying officially they stand against the discipline. And when you're going to be a United Methodist Church or clergy, it makes sense that you would stand by the discipline. And if you can't do that, leave. Now they're saying none of us are standing by it. And if you don't like it, you can leave. And so we're paying money, traditionalists are, to leave. That's what's happening right now. And they're shaming us for it on the way out. All right, continuing on with this document, uh, with respect to UMC governance, there is no accountability for violations of the Book of Discipline. Now, that's not exactly clear, uh, true. Uh, when this was published, Scott Jones was a bishop in the denomination, and he would um, prosecute violations of the Book of Discipline. However, he since left and joined the Global Methodist Church, so I don't think there are any bishops that will... Um, well, you know what? They'll still prosecute violations of the Book of Discipline, um, I'm sure some charges, but if it's anything related to our current culture wars, I don't think they will. Uh, I'll gladly, I will happily eat my words if somebody can send me evidence of a current bishop pressing charges against uh, clergy for doing something that um, is liberal. All right, what about causing harm? Uh, the, the original author says conflict is hurting our witness to others. It's disrupting the missions and ministries of the church. It's causing fear and confusion in the body of Christ. It's distracting focus on the church. Um, yeah, that's all true. They don't argue with that. And then the, the, the editors say, and it's making ministries suffer. It levels far more things at it. It's diversion and loss of significant funds from church ministries in order to fund disaffiliation attempts, as well as huge emotional and relationship costs to congregation in going through the process. That's true. Uh, there are additional burdens, responsibilities, and expenses will be borne by the church and staff with loss of the infrastructure, funding, personnel, and support of the UMC and connected churches. UMC pastors may only serve in the United Methodist churches, so disaffiliation forces tough decisions for pastors. Do they remain in the denomination or transfer churches? Do they surrender UMC credentials and benefits to stay? Do they retire? Other options? So there are a couple more, and they're, they're all true. And the thing is, the editors would say it's the fault of 
evangelical caucus groups for making churches go through these hard times. And I just don't think that that's true. I think that's a fundamentally dishonest and disingenuous way to treat these concerns. Traditionalists have valid theological and ethical concerns about how we can share a church together whenever we have decades of resentment, manipulation, uh, gaslighting, um, politicking. These things don't just disappear, and in fact, they seem to be getting worse and worse. So things have been coming to a head. This is what happens whenever you do not administer the church well. And, and if I don't take care of my marriage with my wife, if I, if I have a long-term resentful relationship with my wife, then I don't get to be surprised or upset whenever I come home and my kids are a wreck, the household is a wreck, our finances are a wreck, I'm looking at losing everything. That is what's called the chickens coming home to roost, okay? That's what's called, uh, you made this bed, now you lay in it. Now, if we had defended the Book of Discipline and we had an institution that, that, that had integrity, then sure, people would be leaving because people are always are leaving institutions. But you wouldn't see this mass exodus. You wouldn't see this, this huge contingent uh, just paying money to get out. You wouldn't see that if we had maintained the doctrines and discipline of the United Methodist Church. But that's, that, that, that ship has sailed. We've got what we've got, and you can either reckon with it, or you can just say, oh, we have all these malcontents. We, just a few of them, they don't matter, but we're going to respond to them. Um, it's just silly. Uh, with respect to irreconcilable p- positions, the original authors say we have theological orientations that are significantly different. Both groups believe their own perspective is true to the gospel. What's the note here from the editor? There are theological differences in and among members of the United Methodist Church, and they've always existed, dating back to its formation in 1968. That's the beauty of our denomination. The table is big enough and welcoming enough for everyone. As a Methodist, you don't have to conform to a tiny box, the ultra-conservative box. It was just saying that the conservatives are actually liberal because they have a liberal interpretation of the Bible, but now it's saying that they want to be ultra-conservative. It's incoherent. We value diversity of thought, free will, ethnicity, age, and gender. We have gotten along, lie, and done wonderful and impactful ministry together, arguable. We can continue together by choosing unity over separation. So, I mean, that's a straight-up lie. We have gotten, gotten along. We have not gotten along. No one from an outsider or insider's perspective would look at the United Methodist Church with sober eyes and say that we've gotten along. It's been fighting the whole time. Now, secondly, to say that there have always been theological differences, when you look back at the history of the church universal, yeah, there have always been theological differences between heretics and orthodox people, and the history of the church is figuring out who's within the bounds of the saving covenant of Jesus Christ and who's out of bounds, and that is authority given by Christ to the church. The keys of the kingdom were given to the church, uh, whoever... (laughs) Uh, whoever sins are, are loosed on earth or loosed in heaven, whoever sins are retained on earth or retained in heaven, Christ gave that authority to the church. The church is called to be the people who resemble Jesus. We're supposed to bear a strong family resemblance to Jesus. We do not have license to just draw the circle wide, bring everybody into the tent, say everybody gets salvation. At that point, we, we give up. We forfeit our heritage in Christ Jesus. The whole point in labels is that we ascribe to them and are defined by them. If we get rid of the meaning of the label, 
dying to self and being born again in Christ Jesus, confessing the historic Christian doctrines of the faith as known in the scriptures, if you throw that out, then this whole thing means nothing. And you have a lot of people, apparently the editors here would say, yeah, I mean, that's fine. You know, we, we decide what it means collectively together. And traditionalists are the ones saying, no, no, I, I want to belong to the one true universal Catholic church. That's what I want to belong to. When I read my Bible, I want to see my church and my discipleship in it. And whenever I read my Bible and what I've got in my church is so different, that hurts me. That alienates me. That, that makes me wonder why I'm in this church. Um, the, the fact that liberals intentionally misunderstand that bothers me. Um, so what does the original author say about differences in opinion? The wide range of disagreements about theology, human sexuality, interpretation of the scriptures illustrate how deep our divide has become. Both sides believe their understanding of the Bible is correct. I find this to be a generous thing to say. You know, a lot of conservatives that are bitter would say, they know they're a bunch of liars. They know they're wrong. They're just doing it because they hate us. The authors of this say they fully believe in their own mind. They're correct. They're doing this genuinely. So they highlight this, this portion. The purpose is not to persuade, but, oh, the purpose of this document is not to persuade, but rather to present the major issues confronting our denomination today. Our church's future will be decided by you, the professing members. So they're saying, we're, we're lining this out so you understand it better and you can make an informed decision. The editor here from the conference is going to argue against this. He says, he or she says, caution, this original presentation contains some information that is misinformation and or incomplete information and or presents only one side of the issues. Right on the front end, I think this is a, an unhelpful thing. I'm not sure what misinformation they've pointed out here. Has anything said been false so far? I can't point to anything. By nature, all information is going to be incomplete. This is not pretending to be a, a, a fully comprehensive thing. This is a 33-page document trying to help people navigate a very complex, long-standing issue. Um, it says only presents one side of the issues. It literally just got done presenting both sides of the issues. So that's just a silly thing to say. Back to the editor. Thus, its purpose can be another, uh, none other than to persuade its argue, audience, unless the omissions of other perspectives and information about the denomination were oversights. If there were oversights, then the original document previously adopted perhaps should be modified and voted on again, as an updated version. This is just nitpicky and unhelpful. So um, if, if truth points in a certain direction, then I don't think you get to say, well, by giving the truth, you're persuading people. This is doing its best to be truthful. Surely it's made by humans and it's got imperfections, but if the inference is it should not be used or the authors have bad intentions, uh, I, I, I don't even know why this is here. It's presenting true information that hasn't been corrected. Um, so I, I found this next section helpful as well by the original authors. What if some of my beliefs are in both views? Well, first off, you're not alone. <laughs> they don't say, well, you're a heretic then. They just say, you're not alone. Uh, you should prayerfully consider how important each of these beliefs is in your faith work. You should read scripture related to each belief or topic. You should use references provided to read about current practices in the United Methodist Church. Ask questions. Contact a committee member a member of our clergy, or a spiritual mentor. Um, the, the conference then adds several other things to do that are also good. So I, I don't even think they're arguing with each other. I think the original author would say, yeah, 
that's that's fine too. These are all fine too. Um, it has a page on the history of that current local church's affiliations, uh, and it starts with the Methodist Episcopal Church in 1828. That's an old church. There is a question at the end of this page. What is God, through the Holy Spirit, leading this local church to do on behalf of the seekers who've not yet made it to your property and or inside of God's church? Okay, I think that's fine. The next slide is, why consider disaffiliation? What are the pros? You have greater control and pastoral leadership, staff, and church vision consistent with our faith beliefs. Okay, so um, the note here is, this is future conjecture. This is dependent on the direction taken after disaffiliation, any new affiliation, if any, and the eventual rules of any new denomination. So, yeah, they're not saying they're going to the GMC, which will almost certainly give greater control in these things. They're saying you don't know if you're going independent, Free Methodist Church. This is just another unhelpful thing. Like uh, they're saying, if if we disaffiliated, this is a pro that is very likely we could have greater control in these things. Um, I think it stands. The next one is um, another pro would be it enables our congregation to own our property and assets, approximately fifteen million dollars in current trust, delivering power. Delevering, I think it's delivering power of the conference in our local matters. Delevering. Okay, I think it is delevering. So it's saying the annual conference currently controls uh, all their property and assets in some capacity. We would get rid of that. What's the note here? Oh, no, uh, they don't argue with that. They argue with the next one, which is a leaner bureaucracy. The note here is that also is future conjecture. This is dependent on the direction taken after. De- it's the same exact thing, I think, is the one above. Um, once again, there's just a fundamental disagreement about whether or not it's reasonable to expect people not to engage in conjecture or whether or not conjecture is a valid form of discourse at this point. I and many people would say conjecture is very much needed at this time. Other pros for disaffiliation are tithe funds, what is consistent with our beliefs. Uh, they don't argue with that. The other one is other Wesleyan affiliations are more consistent with traditional Orthodox Christian beliefs. That's true generally, except for the Salvation Army at this point, I think. All right, so what's the note on this one? Study each Wesleyan-affiliated church before affirming this statement. I think they mean denomination. Some existing denominations may not be consistent, and some newer ones don't have a book of discipline that is, you know, that's just an an unhelpful, nitpicky thing, Uh, generally speaking. Yeah, we're dealing with generalizations again. Uh, The UMC is the most liberal of the Wesleyan branches. What are the cons that the original authors offer with uh, disaffiliation? There's an uncertainty associated with change. Uh, Second one is we may collectively agree with the progressive changes. So it's it's acknowledging uh, disaffiliating is not the right choice for every church. There are some churches that are generally progressive, and, and the UMC might continue to be a good fit for us. Um, but the editors can't just let that sit. They say there are no progressive changes as of now. This is merely a prediction of what changes may occur if. So it's once again a problem with conjecture or prognostication. You you see that's a theme throughout this. It's a theme throughout the whole disinformation conversation right now. We need to nip this one in the bud, but I don't think we're going to. I think it's going to continue to be said. Another con, the original author says, uh, we're not comfortable with division. Another con, 
um, we're okay to go with top-down governance and less local control. You know, some people like to be told what to do. You know, that is the Episcopal model or the connectional model. Uh, my bishop was recently saying, you know, we're not, Methodists are not congregationalists. You know, we, we never have been. We really shouldn't be. And you know what? That's a valid argument. So, uh, hey, maybe we like the Episcopal model and we need to stick with it. Um, a couple other cons suggested by the editors. Love, if you love the United Methodist Church and have seen the good it does throughout the church over the years, you want, you want to continue to be part of it. Uh, another one would be with the denomination, there may be challenges, but there's a future too. Uh, I'm going to engage in some conjecture. That future might be continual shrinking, decline, aging, uh, and death. Just might be. I, I certainly don't wish that upon any denomination. Um, however, if, if they continue to go down this road, it seems inevitable to me. Whatever. Um, they uh, just added a slide all to themselves, the editors did, why consider remaining in the denomination? And then they add pros and cons. What are the pros? There's a consistency and approach and interpretation of the Bible across all issues. I don't think that's true at all. We've seen a number of approaches change over time. Huge advocacy for changing. So I don't think there's a, a consistency. They say there's a proven track record, established discipline, governance, financial, and lay pastoral systems. That's, that's true. There's no need, this is the third one, to divert ministry funds to disaffiliation efforts. That's absolutely true. But you know what? Um, we don't have to charge money for people wanting to leave right now. That's a decision they're making. Um, point four, stability and experience with the denomination that has existed for 50-plus years. That's just a commercial point. They've already made that point. Uh, next one, uh, support resources and connections to the United Methodist Church. It's over 31,000 churches and 12 million members. Um, I'm a local church pastor. I've been serving in the UMC for 11 years. I have not noticed a lot of good quality resources offered to the local church. I see a lot of stuff generated by the general agencies for left-leaning congregations. I have not found many things to be helpful, especially considering how much money the local church is sending to the general church. Um, the next point is uh, a pro for staying UMC. Continued support of great ministries like UMCOR, colleges, relief groups, etc. UMCOR is pretty much universally loved. You know, in conservative uh, disaffiliating churches, many of them intend to keep supporting them. You don't have to be Meth United Methodist to support UMCOR. Now, with respect to colleges and relief groups, there have been a series of battles fought over the course of decades of progressive, liberal uh, people significantly compromising those things and very embarrassing things being practiced and preached in those institutions. Another pro to staying UMC is welcoming to all. Uh, we have diversity in thought, leadership, and service. Uh, if you've ever been to general conference or even a lot of annual conferences, you know this is a lie. There is a lot of hatred directed at some people depending on what you believe and think. Another pro is no changes to your church. It allows continued focus on ministry. Um, I would say uh, that is telling the future. What is the word they keep using for that? Um, uh, the, 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 the conjecture. I would say that is conjecture. You're saying there won't be any changes, um, but that's a. I think that's a mean way to be. Uh, there are almost certainly going to be changes to your church over time. 
uh, it's just inevitable. Institutions change um, from the top down or from the bottom up. Uh, and then another final pro is you keep, keep United Methodist pastors. A lot of local churches would see that as a con. What are some cons that they um, uh, offer about staying United Methodist Church? Can they be fair in presenting this? Uh, you will belong to a diverse connectional group of believers who may not all think like you, as you have for however long you have been attending your UMC church. So it's saying you can be one of these jerks that wants everybody to think like you, or you can realize you can be gracious like us. Um, I think that's a disingenuous way to... It's not about what I believe. It's about what the Bible tells me to believe and what Christ Jesus died for me to believe because uh, it's, it's faith alone that saves. It's not about me. It's about something bigger than me and outside of me. In the progressive ideology, there is nothing bigger than what I personally believe. There's just institutions that can reflect what I... Per th this, this is a uh, projection of a liberal mindset onto conservatives who see things fundamentally different. Saying, well, if you can't be gracious, this might not be a place for you. Traditionalists can be very gracious as long as there's clarity about who we are and what we believe. But once people start using the same words with different meanings, once people start intentionally trying to muddy the waters, that's when we say, hey, hey, we can't go any further together. What's another con they uh, volunteer? With a new denomination, you will be required to abide by rules, governance, and processes that aren't yet set in stone. So it's saying, hey, you're going to the Wild West. It's not all figured out for you like here. And that's true. <laughs> um, another con, uh, lesser institutional autonomy and local autonomy in the hands of very few local men, in parentheses, and women. It's kind of making a dig saying if you go a conservative direction, they might not have a position for women in leadership. Just saying uh, you're not going to belong to this bigger body anymore. You're going to report to fewer leaders. That may or may not be true. Um, next con is disaffiliation requires giving up UMC identity, uh, signage, records, electronic stamps, hymnals, etc. You know, you notice a lot of these are doing the conjecture thing. It's saying in the future, you're probably going to have to do this. So it's okay when they do conjecture. It's not okay when conservatives do it. Uh, uh, bad for thee, but not for me. I think that's the saying. Anyway, um, yeah, you'd have to give up some of that. That's kind of the point. They want to give it up. <laughs> uh, they don't see it as a con. Uh, another con, that there are huge risks to going independent or with a new upstart denomination without a proven track record. We've got our proven track record of 50 years of fighting. Don't you want to be a part of that? No, no thank you. Um, huge risks to going independent. Yeah, okay, life is risky, first off. Secondly, a lot of these churches are making a decision uh, because staying with the UMC is untenable. Things are so bad in the UMC, they would rather spend money and leave to retain the disciples they have rather than stick with the UMC and have people uh, one at a time say, the UMC is a faithless institution. I can't be a part of it. That's been happening for decades. That's why uh, the WCA was formed. That's why eventually the GMC split off. They just said, we can't wait any longer. We've been kicking the can down the road for decades. We have to get out. It's riskier to stay than it is to go. Uh, the final con they, they supplement is there are significant costs associated with disaffiliation. We've covered that. So they also present the editors a new slide. Why would we consider a wait-and-see approach? They just want us to wait and see. The pros are 
You keep church stable for the time being, that's arguable. If they're already unstable because of years of bad behavior on the part of the denomination, it is not going to continue to be stable. Um, another pro would be it allows the church to continue focus on ministry activities. That's true. Yeah, keep them busy while you're working behind the scenes. That would be to someone's benefit. Another pro would be uh, it allows the church to maintain or improve their financial condition. That's arguably true. I'm aware of many traditionalist churches where people refuse to tithe as long as it's in, uh, associated with the United Methodist denomination. So I would I would actually think this is not true in a lot of circumstances. Um, the other uh, benefit to waiting and seeing, uh, it provides further clarity on the denomination's future ministry following annual conference 2023. I'm sure that's true in some respects. Um, next one is it allows the congregation adequate time for discernment, exploration of options, and education and growth. That's fine. Okay, whatever. And it allows the church to keep UMC pastors. We already addressed whether or not that's a pro. Um, the cons would be uh, that there are no definitive decisions, okay, that uncertainty may remain. Well, hey, that's life. And uh, the denomination pastors with credentials cannot serve non-UMC churches unless they retire. You know what? That's not true. Uh, we have plenty of uh, United Methodist pastors that serve non-United Methodist um, mission fields and churches. It happens all the time. But the reality is that the UMC is, is, is taking a stance towards the GMC where there is to be no cooperation whatsoever. Um, so that's true. So next slide is what should I do? Pray, study your Bible, ask questions. Hey, that's great. Uh, next steps, pray. Gee, you know, this sounds really faithful to me, praying, 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 you know. Um, continue to gather for information. Church members will continue to be informed and then the editor added uh, through open, transparent, unbiased, and fact-based communications. You know what? The editor might have added pray, pray, pray since it's in red. That's not clear to me. But if they did, good on them. That's a good thing. Um, what else? Scriptures and references used in the presentation are available. FAQs are available to members. And then the, yeah, the uh, editor says make sure everyone knows that they have both a voice and a vote. Well, that's not exactly true. Well, so everybody has a voice, but only members get a vote in this. Um, so the original author says general conference is postponed until 2024. A traditional Orthodox Global United Methodist Church will launch on May 1st, 2022. So this was um, published before that. Um, the question from the editor is, what about the other Methodist denominations to consider? Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Uh, they're talking about the GMC for the most part. Now, something I neglected to talk about in the wait-and-see approach is uh, something they acknowledged in the beginning, which is at the end of 2023, paragraph 2553, which is the only provision for exiting the denomination, expires. So a wait-and-see con would be if you wait till the end of the year, it's possible, if not likely, you will never get another chance to exit with your property intact. So they'll say that's conjecture, and I would say, yeah, we're all doing conjecture. It's not misinformation. Um, all right, so we have an appendix for personal considerations. Um, you know, I, I think that you can uh, find this document and read those on your own. I feel pretty good about the discursus I did here. Um, if you made it to the end of this, what I'm hoping is that this will get passed around to churches that are doing the disaffiliation process to kind of think through what is disinformation? What is helpful discourse? What is missing? You know, uh, we 
are in a situation where a lot of very firm voices from the institution will say, this is a valid way of talking about it. This is an invalid way of talking about it. And I just don't think that we should outsource our critical faculties to anyone based on their office or denominational position. I think that we have to each individually use the brains we've been given, pray, read scripture. Yes, all of this is right. And we need to think through these things ourselves. These are very impactful decisions that, I mean, if you read through this document, the editor wants you to think it's only a few people leaving. It's over misinformation. They're intolerant. You don't want to be with them. Be with the big church. We're happy here. We get along. There's going to be a place for everybody. And I, I don't think that that is a realistic or honest argument to make explicitly or implicitly. It's been uh, a denomination rife with conflict the entire time. The, uh, the structure of the denomination for a long time has not been interested in executing the will of the general conference, whether we're talking about the general boards and agencies level or bishop, bishops or jurisdictional level. Um, there's been dysfunction for a long time. And I understand there's a lot of people who've just learned to live and be happy in dysfunction. Uh, I and many others don't want it. I'm not saying that I'm disaffiliating from the United Methodist Church, but I am saying that people with these concerns are uh, not bad people. They're not idiots. Uh, they're people with legitimate concerns, and I would really appreciate it if the uh, powers that be could, um, could treat this better. Do better. That's a helpful thing to say, right? Um, all right, well, I should draw this thing to a close. I hope you found it useful. If you didn't, don't say anything. I kind of like my channel growing. Um, so if you did like it, pass it along, promote it, and uh, I'll promote, uh, I'll, I'll do some more news commentary here soon. So thanks for joining me.